Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1998, Anne Burke was working as a social worker at a woman's shelter in Dufferin County. When she ran into an old high school friend, who told her that one of their grade 12 classmates had been convicted of two murders that took place in 1970. Anne hadn't heard the name Ronald Glenn West in over 30 years. But she remembered the awkward teenager who was painfully shy around girls. Anne learned that Ronald West had joined the Metro Toronto Police Force shortly after high school, and it was during his career as a cop that he had murdered two random women in their rural homes while their young children were present. For many years, the two murders went unsolved, but finally, through a great deal of perseverance on the part of the police investigators and some sheer luck, Ronald West was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. The disturbing story stuck with Anne, and she eventually decided to write a book about the crimes of Ronald West. Her research would take years, and she would become close to many of the original police officers and detectives that worked on the case. Anne's book is called The Seventh Shot, and I recently had the pleasure of speaking with her. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on your book, The Seventh Shot on the Trail of Canada's 22 Caliber Killer. Uh, you went to high school with Ronald West. Was he a guy that stood out, or was he someone that you would have barely noticed? <laughs> Actually, I and probably most of those attending school at the time all agreed that he was probably as close to being invisible as it could be. Uh, several school friends uh, said exactly that, in fact. One schoolmate uh, who prided herself in recalling probably everyone in a relatively small rural high school could not recall him at all. A couple of fellow students remembered him as being kind of creepy. I recall him as being an individual that would often, uh, you would see him with his head down, and possibly just a sideways glance, often with this odd sort of slight grin, like there was a private joke. But um, 
mostly just a total lack of eye contact with what struck me, at least around females. And I would probably at the time have described him as someone painfully shy at the very least. And in 1998, you first heard that your old classmate had been convicted of murdering two women in 1970. What made you decide to embark on a book several years later about this story? I was working as a coordinator at a rural, uh, something, uh, it was a, a learning center or community center, you might say. It was in the general area of the high school that we had attended as, uh, as teenagers. I'd been involved along with, uh, someone I worked with at the time, a youth worker in rescuing a victim from across the street uh, and attempting to protect others uh, in an attempted murder case. We ended up being very involved in the pre-trial, the trial and testifying and sentencing, and later on received some awards for bravery, this, that, and the other. Anyway, it turned out that the perpetrator at the time was an ex-cop. And I do address all of this in the book, actually. But the second occurrence was when the old friend, as you mentioned, asked me in either 1998-99, had I heard that West had become a Toronto Metro cop and was to be charged for the murders of two nurses during that time. And I remember thinking at the time, another homicidal cop? You know, what were the odds? So I guess over the next 15-odd years, it became pretty apparent to me that I was basically being compelled now to write this book. I know you've been asked this question before, but tell us how you chose the title of your book, The Seventh Shot. Okay, I'm glad you asked. It is basically the nexus of the book. Um, you may recall from the, Dor- uh, the Doreen Morby case, the first case in Gormley, that uh, they f- eventually discovered, the coroner did, that she'd been shot seven times. And the fact that Dorian had been shot seven times became central to the whole solving of the case years later for Detective Inspector Don McNeil. He was a young OPP officer at the time of uh, Doreen's murder. He had commented shortly after that that who shoots someone and reloads to shoot them again one more time, he saw no reason for this. And I think it led him to consider that Maybe this was not a typical six shot at all, but possibly a less uh, popular nine shot. And they had been able to identify that shots came from the same gun, at least back then, not necessarily. They couldn't confirm it was a nine shot, but they could confirm that both shots, uh, Doreen and Helen, came from the same gun. Um, So Don McNeil stored that bit of information away for nearly 30 years, and when he did ask for the case later on, the cold case, and Detective Sergeant Ed Pellerin of the Blind River OPP produced this old permit that had been discovered, squirreled away in the house that Weston Reina Lacroix had rented in Blind River. It was basically uh, the beginning of the end of Reign of Terror. That's, That's how it came to have the title, The Seventh Shot. The, the number of coincidences is uh, is quite incredible uh, with respect to how uh, this all came together. Uh, speaking of which, you were just talking about some of the police officers that uh, that you met and talk uh, talk about in your book. Uh, you got to know several of them. 
um, like uh, Don Hillock, who was first on the scene of the Doreen Morby murder. Was it hard for him to relive these these memories from from that day back in 1970? Uh, yes, it was very vivid always to him, as it was most of the officers who were directly involved. Um, it had remained vivid for many years for all of them, perhaps more so as the case has remained unsolved, I think. Uh, they kind of relived it over and over. They all appeared to grapple with the concept of killing a young mother in front of their children. They were all aware that the children required years and years of counseling, and several of the officers who attended West's trial remembered almost word for word Helen's then eight-year-old son, uh, his victim's statement uh, when he said, uh, the last time I saw my mother, she was being carried away on a stretcher covered by a sheet. I'll never forget her expression when I found her lying on the floor, her eyes half open in a pool of blood. Beyond that, I don't remember her at all. Dale faced West directly then in the court and asked him, do you remember running from our house, Ron? I do. It's clearer than my first kiss, the birth of my kids, or what I had for lunch today. Myself, I still from time to time, and quite surprisingly, am presented with a vision of the most innocent picture of sheets blowing on Doreen's clothesline, for example. And I know, particularly in that day in court, every officer that attended mentioned that statement, and they all said there wasn't a dry eye in the place. It brought it all back so vividly for them. And just to touch on this quickly, I think it says so much about the whole uh, police suicide issue and how important it is for um, them to address vicarious trauma amongst police officers that deal with this with this sort of uh, incident. Anyway, <laughs> I think we do forget how uh, how those um, those cases uh, stay with these officers for for their entire careers and and beyond. Yes. Yes, and that that uh, sense that they carry, that they have to, they feel that they, it's so important that they bring it to some kind of conclusion and some closure for those families of the victims. I agree. Going back to the the original uh, the original case, do you think Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson had been specifically targeted uh, and stalked by West, or do you think their murders were completely random? Well, it was determined by the police um, early on that they felt the acts were entirely random and that both women were actually victims just of sheer opportunity. Um, Because I knew Ron had occasion to pass both their locations, this was after I started looking into geographical profiling, this sort of thing, but I realized that he had occasion to pass both their spots quite often, uh, particularly to pass Helen's, to return to the farm, the family farmhouse in Amaranth, and uh, Doreen's to where he holidayed at Musselman Lake. And I always felt he had scouted both women somehow. You, I, I'm sure most people will even see from the cover of the book, the photo, he seemed to value those binoculars to me. Um, and given the time of day of both crimes, first of all, I think it's quite possible he may have seen Helen waiting at the end of the driveway with little Pam, her daughter at lunchtime, for the kindergarten bus. And again, it wasn't entirely impossible at the time that he might see Doreen at play, and given the time of year with Brent at the front of the house. 
And number one reason for me, I guess, in believing it, is both women bore a strong resemblance to West's mother. And there's more on that in the book, actually, as to why that, you know, uh, is important, I feel, in the case itself. But those would be my reasons for for believing those things. But I don't think they're generally held by the police necessarily, or at least they didn't pursue that angle. My impression is that both of their homes were far off the road, a little isolated. Uh, Actually, yes, somewhat. Yes, yes. Yes, a little drawn back from the road. Um, one, Helen's being a little higher, uh, but some trees in between. But you could see the end of the driveway from up there. Um, and there were clumps of cedars at the base of uh, Doreen's home. But you could see the top of the driveway and possibly some children's ride-on toys and that sort of thing. Yes, but they were rural with not a lot of traffic. But definitely on routes that that West would take. If he even got a glimpse, I can see him possibly going into the trees and watching them with his binoculars. That's how I kind of picture it in my mind. Because he would have passed these two locations pretty regularly before that time. And you interviewed several friends of, of Ronald West and other people that you went to school with. Uh, was there mm-hmm. anything in his past that uh, that others, you know, said maybe stood out that could have been a sign of of his inner demons and and what was to come. Anything that stood out for anyone? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, among those inter- interviewed, um, particularly from his younger years and early teen years, uh, some saw absolutely nothing. They were shocked. You could have asked them and they would have said, if you'd asked me of all the individuals I knew as a a young person, the last person I would have considered would have been Ron West for committing these crimes. However, just as great a number uh, shared details which, when put together, formed a really alarming pattern. Everything from bullying to setting fires to stealing, right up to torturing his younger brother, and more, which taken together formed uh, a frightening profile, you know, to most of a monster in the making from an early age. The police believe that Ronald West is responsible for other murders, uh, including the double homicide at Blind River Rest Stop in 1991. Do you think... um, short of a confession by West, will ever know how many other murders he committed. Mm. You know, Catherine, I think some will remain unsolved, but I'd like to think that uh, they still may solve the murder part case in Line River. I, I think there's still a chance of recovering some of those weapons and the stolen, stolen items from Jackie. Uh, it's possible they'll surface from in the silt of the Mississauga or Blind Rivers at some point or just pop up. I don't know if we're still in, in, you know, at a point where someone's going to remember something necessarily, but I hope there may be something that the police can at least add to the minimal you know, things that they were able to hopefully um, to go to the crown with, uh, with a case. I do know that they did have, I found out this later, I think maybe after the book was written, I do know that they went to the crown in Sault Ste. Marie with some things that they had they felt might 
help identify the killer, but it wasn't considered enough at the time. So possibly with those, and if some other things come up, there might still be a chance. Given West's time in the North, I think most interests me on and near the reserves. I feel strongly that he may be responsible for some yet unsolved cases of missing and murdered First Nations women and girls. Um, he spent a fair amount of time on Attawapiskat, Pickle Lake areas, when he was mining up in the James Bay area. And I, I myself have kept a bit of a catalog of a number of these open cases, and I dig them out from time to time to see what's happening with them. I'm not sure if the police have... Um, seriously considered West for the cold corridor cases in my book, but there seems lots of possibilities and opportunity, and I've talked to at least one other true crime author about a few of these. We've discussed some of the possibilities that truly exist with those cases, and I've had some additional suggestions put forward by readers as well. In short, no, we will probably never know all of them. I guess I can say that. Yes, because it seems impossible that he would have committed these two um, cold-blooded, very vicious murders in 1970 and then stopped. I mean, it just doesn't seem possible. And yes, what you and every police officer I've ever spoken to has said is exactly that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Most unusual to just stop. Yeah. And Detective Pellerin, who was with the, the Blind River Detachment, it must have been very, very frustrating for him and his colleagues knowing that I mean, they're they're almost certain that he is responsible for the the um, the murders at that rest stop. So it must be very very frustrating mm-hmm. for uh, investigators in that circumstance because it just can't. Uh, I think in your book you mentioned that you know unless they could li- literally put him in that motorhome, um, mm-hmm. they they just didn't have enough to take to the crown. Exactly, and there was no motorhome anymore, and I don't know what led to it being destroyed when it was. But there was no chance of, you know, recovering any DNA at that point. And uh, very, re- you know, there was really very little to to find at the time. And, and it was odd because the one strong uh, piece of evidence that uh, was not made at the time was that West did own this uh, light blue van and... Um, I remember asking about that when I was in Blind River, asking if he ever carried a canoe on top because I wondered about him getting rid of, you know, getting rid of of jewelry and so on in either of the rivers at the time. But that was not connected. They didn't make that connection until later during the North Shore robberies. Then they realized he had a light blue van and this was typical of the van. So that was another thing. Unfortunately, they didn't make that connection at that time, but but they certainly made an effort. <laughs> mhm. Well, let's hope they uh they continue on that uh on mm-hmm. that search because it would be great to uh to be able to resolve uh again two very cold-blooded um senseless murders for uh for that uh the family of those two victims. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you've you've uh, spoken to a few people after and 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 received information after the book has uh, has come out and was published. Um, what what can you tell us a few things like maybe like who's contacted you or what what's been sort of the most fascinating thing that's happened for you after uh, after the book was published? I've been connected by uh, I've been connected. Uh, with family members, uh, not necessarily directly uh, related to the victim, always just someone who's related to the family. I always, um, I decided early on I was not, if I could possibly not approach the families directly, I wouldn't. Uh, I found I could probably find out anything I needed to without doing that. I didn't want to re-victimize anyone. Um had a lot, a lot of uh, contact with people who were from school and then the friends of the children of Helen's, for example, went to school with Helen's children, uh, neighbors, 
of Helen and El- and um, her husband. And uh, I actually had Doreen uh, Morby's older sister, who's in a nursing home now, make contact with me through an, uh, a nephew, I believe, that she wanted to meet with me. And we're planning to after COVID's a little uh, less looming, I suppose, because she mm-hmm. is at a nursing home too. But she wanted me to come and she wanted to talk about what Doreen was like as a young girl to me. I've had people walk up to me and say, oh, I remember so-and-so when she came to my family's home, you know, as a girl for dinner to see my sister and so on. So a lot of that probably... um one of the most remarkable would be uh, a woman by the name of Charlotte Flanagan. Uh, her name now is McMaster. She shared one of the most amazing stories and believable stories that she felt very strongly. She was West's first victim at the age of 20. She was shot in the face by a yet unidentified person while she was playing cards in a Danforth Avenue apartment in Toronto on March the 8th, 1969. So this would be the year before the murders uh, in the Moraine. And Mm -hmm. um, she was a student at the time. And we're still, she's still putting together what she can about the case. And I've conferred with um, Robert Hyshowski, actually, another author. We've talked about this. He kind of has his finger on a lot of things in Toronto. And uh, we're trying to find out, you know, a little bit more about it. But um, I have to mention here, uh, one of the first things that struck me when she told me this was the date. It was March 8th in 1969. And, and I always felt the date, anniversaries, were so important to West. I don't know if that came through in the book. But he had turned 22 years old the day prior to the shooting. And as well, he lived very nearby, owned several weapons. And again, and number one, Charlotte, from a picture her daughter sent me, looked remarkably like West's mother. So there'll be more to come on that, I'm sure, down the road. We're we're still putting it together to find out what we can from here. It remains unsolved uh, to this day, so it, it should be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting. Uh, you tried to contact uh, Ronald West in 2017, and... Um, I don't believe he ever replied to your request. Um, mm-hmm. Now, now you know a few years later, and after the book ha- has been has has been published, uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do you still wish he had, or are you kind of happy that he didn't? Well, uh, West has an absolute perfect record of never speaking to anyone while he's been on the inside, or any other time, really. I think he holds on to his crimes like the cherished souvenirs. They must be to him. He did suggest once, around 95, when he was just sentenced for the North Shore robberies, that he would talk to Ed Pellerin, uh, Detective Sergeant Ed Pellerin. I think he found Ed probably one of the most approachable cops in his mind that he'd come across. I believe uh, that Ed, even though he's retired now, uh, if the opportunity arose and Wes was open to it, he would still attempt to speak with him. And and if anything comes from Ron, I think it probably would be through Ed. Also, if Wes has or should read the book, he may want to set me right on numbers 
And deep down, I think he's pretty proud of himself. Um, he's wired pretty differently from most of us. But I think if anything comes, it might, it you know, it might be through Ed if anyone. Otherwise, I, I don't, I don't think he's going to share much. And why do you think he has never applied for parole? I believe he's been eligible for uh, about ten years since 2011. Why do you think he he's never asked to to get parole? Yeah, I think he knows for sure that the families of the victims will always be there to challenge him. And he's quite typically of his type, a coward. And no, no doubt, too, he's in minimum security now, possibly even on day release, as far as I know. And honestly, having worked with the homeless, which I have, prison life can seem pretty appealing to a 74-year-old man without anyone likely to greet him warmly on the outside. I think he's probably settled in quite well and might be quite happy. I, I actually hoped at one time, and I'd, I'd ask the police this, if he was told that he could share, you know, more of his crimes, that he wouldn't necessarily have to go back on the range, that he could stay in minimum sec- security. Could that be arranged? And they all kind of scratch their heads. Well, I don't know, you know, because I really thought mm-hmm. he might feel that good about staying inside. I mean, what's there to come out to? Really, for him, I don't see much. And I don't think his health's the best from what I gathered from talking to Ed uh, a number of times as well. So I don't know. I, he may want to just stay there. And I, 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 I read in your book and sort of, heard, you know, heard through the, the grapevine, so to speak, having talked to a few other people in uh, corrections, that uh, someone like West is a uh, is a model prisoner and as much as he was as a ghost on the outside he's almost the same inside uh so mm-hmm. so that's interesting i think just from what i've read and it's not from what i know i don't even pretend to be schooled in this but i think from the his personality i think that personality thrives in that kind of environment very often so i mean he can keep to himself he can not talk about anything he doesn't want to talk about. He's fed, he's kept warm, incredible medical attention, you know, I think he probably does quite well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know since the book came out uh, that there's been a number of comparisons between Ronald West and Joseph D'Angelo, the um, the Golden State Killer, who was who was re- recently discovered again through genetic genealogy. Um, <laughs> so, could tell me more about that and what you've heard. Well, I'm just amazed at the number of remarkable similarities, and readers have loved to share more regularly, you know, than you can imagine. Um, I've often I often visited Detective Inspector uh, Don McNeil after he was retired when he was feeling a little better, and we chatted a lot about just this and uh, just some ideas, some of the comparisons, just to rattle them off, really. But they were both police officers, not entirely unusual, however, given the fact that serial killers are fascinated generally with police work. They both worked in their own comfort zones. In Ron's case, that would have been rural and isolated. For D'Angelo, it was mid to upper class areas where they were raised, basically. Both initiated their crimes uh, 
in the peak era when Bundy, Kemper, and Dahmer were coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, and wreaking their own form of havoc, they were unknown to their victims. They left as little evidence as possible. They both had toxic, abusive relationships with their wives and partners. They were both loners and were described as having outbursts of anger. Their families each described them as abused themselves in some form by their respective mothers, and both experienced loss of their fathers at a fairly early age. Wes appeared hugely influenced by a shooting in his youth on their family farm, as D'Angelo's cousin reported that he'd been told by his mother that a young D'Angelo witnessed the rape of his seven-year-old sister. Much of Wes and D'Angelo's youth is shrouded in mystery still, and D'Angelo studied victims closely. I believe Wes did, to some degree at least, did a form of reconnaissance, I think. Uh, both let children survive, and D'Angelo used them to secure compliance, and I, we can assume Wes did. Wes used a gun. D'Angelo graduated to one. Each kept souvenirs, and they both appeared to abruptly end their reign of terror or concealed their crimes. They shared lengthy evasions of justice and were both ultimately convicted through DNA. So Indeed. that's just, and there's a lot more, which becomes small by comparison, but it's quite remarkable. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. This is a, a fascinating case that I, I think uh, many Canadians uh, won't know about. Uh, so uh, I thank you for uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, the book, The Seventh Shot on the Trail of Canada's 22 Caliber Killer, is available in any bookstore and, of course, online. And again, thank you so much, Anne. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you, Catherine. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.